0: This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from BiteSize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebiocom webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page.
1: Hello. This is Amanda Welch, welcoming you to this Bite Size Bio Web Seminar, which today is sponsored by American Journal Experts. American Journal Experts is the world's leading provider of English editing, translation, formatting, and illustration services that help researchers get published. Since 2004, they have worked with researchers, universities, and publishers to support more than 400,000 manuscripts grants, posters, and abstracts in 420 areas of study from 186 countries. Today's presentation is titled, Open Access, Facts, Myths, and Effects on Your Research Funding, and is being presented by Dr. Ben Mudrak, the Global Communications Manager from American Journal Experts. Dr. Mudrak is the Global Communications Manager at American Journal Experts, where he has worked since 2007. He graduated from Duke University with Ph.D. in Molecular Genetics and Microbiology and performed over eight years of research on pathogenic bacteria at Duke and UNC Chapel Hill. Prior to launching American Journal Experts Authors Resource Center, Ben also led over 50 webinars and workshops on academic writing and publishing as part of American Journal Editor's Author Education Program. Now, as always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Ben at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly slash open access webinar. So now, over to you, Ben, for the presentation.
0: Thank you very much,
2: Amanda. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, it's Open Access Week, so it felt like a good time to talk about Open Access and see if we can Provide some data, dispel some myths, and explain a little bit on what it means for the average researcher trying to communicate their work. So uh, as she mentioned, uh, definitely looking forward to some questions at the end, and um, here we go. So I wanted to share very briefly what I want to talk about today, a little bit of the history of open access. It has a pretty interesting one. We'll talk about some of the facts that we know, some examples of the types of open access, some data, and some of the myths. And we'll finish with a short section on what open access means for researchers. So what are the pros and cons? How do you stay away from questionable publishers who may be taking advantage of the model? And what do these new governmental and institutional
0: mandates mean for you? So the history of open access. uh, It has its roots in open source software and courseware with the same
2: concept being applied now to scholarly publishing as well. Just to give you a short timeline in 1990, a journal called Postmodern Culture was launched, and it was online only and completely free and open to read and and uh, take part, uh, take the research and use it. So this is really our first example of what we would consider an open access journal, although they did not use that that term. In 1991, the Preprint Server Archive was launched, and I'll talk about Archive again in a minute. But this was another interesting step for people primarily in the fields of physics and astronomy uh, to share their research um, before it was even published. In 1999 Harold Varmus proposed eBioMed, sort of similar to Archive. It ended up becoming PubMed Central, which we'll also talk about. A number of you have probably used PubMed Central. And then in the 2000s we start to really get into the open access the true open access movement within scholarly publishing as we know it in 2000 biomed central was founded and they are still one of the largest and most successful open access publishers I'm now part of the springer nature family in 2003 boss biology was launched so this was the public library of science entering the open access publishing world and they did so by starting with a few specialty journals that were designed to compete with existing um, high-end journals. So PLOS Biology, PLOS Medicine, you know, these are, these are good journals, they're, they're pretty rigorous, they're pretty um, choosy in terms of what they, they want to accept. In 2006 they launched PLOS One, which I think was a real shift in how we view scholarly publishing. And, and we'll talk a little bit about PLOS One and, and similar journals again later, but this was definitely a, a major turning point in terms of how people view open access, and the role that it serves in, in the publishing space. As of this year, over 9,000 open access journals exist around the world. Um, this is likely to be a little bit of an underestimate, but uh, you can get the idea this is a pretty big, pretty big movement. Uh, it's estimated to be
0: about a third of, the, of all the journals that exist uh, around the world. I don't normally like to put so much text up but I think that
2: the original definition of open access is actually a a pretty informative piece of writing. So in 2002 a number of uh, publishers, researchers, and other people interested in the communication process they met in Budapest and they um, got down to defining what, what they wanted open access to be. So I've got a couple of quotes. The definition of open access is free availability on the public internet, permitting any user to read, download, copy, distribute, print, search, or link to the full text of articles, crawl them for indexing, pass them as data to software, or use them for any other lawful purpose without financial, legal, or technical barriers other than those inseparable from gaining access to the internet itself. So I think that this is an important moment to define open access as being broader than simply being free to read. So a number of things can contain uh, can be free for you to read. If you pick a book out of a library uh, of course you you can take it home with you and read it. A number of websites things are free. The idea behind the open access movement was to broaden the use of the work itself and meaning that you couldn't you didn't just have the ability to read it but you could Distribute it you could do something else with it uh, share it in your classroom build off of it in other lawful ways So we'll talk a little bit about some of the licenses that open access uses and how those are different from traditional copyright today as well The only constraint on reproduction and distribution and the only role for copyright in this domain Should be to give authors control over the integrity of their work and the right to be properly acknowledged and cited So it is important to note that even as the the rights of a reader or user or consumer of content were
0: expanded, the rights of the authors are still there. And the idea is that by expanding the reach of your work, you can
2: positively impact more people, but you should always be acknowledged and cited as the original author of that material. And that is still something that should always be done,
0: no matter where you're publishing your papers. Uh, no matter what format you're using. Okay, so now that we've got the history down, I,
2: I want to spend a little more time diving into what we actually know about open access publishing. So different different types of open access, different types of journals and publishers, um, some of the data we have about the costs, the uh, number of journals, things like that, and then to talk to you about a few of the myths that we've encountered, and a number of others have as well
0: about open access and what what the truth is behind them. So first I think it's important to note that, and this still
2: causes some confusion in the field for sure, there are a couple of different varieties or flavors, or in this case colors of open access that are are being used in different ways. So I wanted to find two of those here and uh, that'll help our, our discussions as we go forward. So green open access, if you hear anyone use that term,
0: refers specifically
2: to taking a copy of your work, and we'll discuss the different formats. It could be typically this is the final accepted manuscript, but not the one that's been copy edited and typeset to look look beautiful like the journal's going to make it, so your post-print. Taking that and putting it then in a repository where it's available to anyone.
0: Some examples of these
2: repositories are archive, they're the digital access
0: to scholarship at Harvard, so individual institutions, or PubMed Central, as I mentioned before. There's another uh, variety of open access called gold. And in this case, the
2: idea behind that is that the author or someone else is paying for the publication. Uh, this is what you might be a little more used to, something like the, the PLOS journals, the BMC journals. Indawi Frontiers, uh, there's tons I could go on and on, um, or individual standalone journals like like PeerJ, which is an interesting one we can get to if there's time. It is important to note though that while gold certainly indicates uh, the idea of financing and, and purchasing power, it isn't always the author that has to pay. And in some cases, uh, an example was eLife. Up until next year, uh, they're going to start charging authors next year, but for the first about three years of the, of the existence of eLife, all of the publication costs were borne by a few large funding agencies. So the Wellcome Trust, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and the Max Planck Institute. There are also plenty of journals, uh, around the world especially, that are run by individual institutions. And in many cases, these don't charge authors either. So not only is the, the, are they free to read, but they're free for authors to publish in. And instead, they're they're housed, they're usually run by volunteer editors, they're housed on like a library server or something like that. Either way, though, that would still fall under gold if if we're comparing and contrasting these two styles of open access. One being green, that it's being published somehow elsewhere, but a copy of it's being made available, versus gold, where the entire publishing process is open access from start
0: to finish. So a couple more definitions for, for green. We'll talk about green first. Um, th- as I mentioned,
2: it depends on, this is what makes it so complicated, and <laughs> we'll talk about that too. Uh, it depends a little on where you're, you're targeting, uh, where you're trying to su- submit your paper, where you have submitted your paper, what institution you're at, um, what format you want to take when you're putting a copy of it up to make sure that it's available for anyone um, to read. So a preprint is the author's submitted draft before peer review. And we're not only seeing people use um, to post a preprint after it's been published somewhere else, but people are now posting preprints by themselves and gaining feedback on them. So archive I mentioned, that's a good example. There is a bio archive now uh, and a couple of other preprint servers run by individual publishers or journals. The postprint would be the final version that the author submitted after peer revision and re- and uh, review, so you've gotten it reviewed, you, are, you fixed the issues
0: or added new data, and it just hasn't gone through the production process at the journal. Either of these could end up in
2: what we would call a repository, which is simply an online space for free, freely available full text articles. So this could be at the institution level, the level of the country, the level of um, a number of things. And finally, if you hear the term embargo, that's simply a period of time before an article can be deposited or shared. And these, again, are largely driven by funding agencies, which we'll talk about in the third part. It is important to note that a number of publishers do support green open access. So they, they are invested in allowing authors to share one or more versions of their paper, usually at... Uh, an institutional level. so They don't necessarily want that same article being shared um, very widely, but it is available if you're trying to showcase the amount of research that you've done or at the level of your, your institution, your department, or your lab. So I won't go into the details for individual publishers, but if you are curious, uh, Sherpa Romeo is a tool you can use to get an idea of different publishers will allow you to do. So there's the um, The URL on the screen, and you can see from this pie chart, out of they have data for about 2,200 publishers, and uh, only about 20% allow no archiving at all. So typically, publishers will allow you to put either
0: the postprint or the the pre pre and postprint somewhere on your lab website or something like that. And to complicate things further. But in, it's also a positive. There are a uh, number
2: of repositories available around the world. So if you are uh, interested in making sure that some of your research that may be behind a paywall, that some version of it is available, you could go to Sherpa. You could look at see what the publisher will allow you to post. You can come to Open Door, which is a an index of uh, a directory of open access repositories, and look for some that are available in your region or in your particular area of study. Um, So you can see here, there's uh, quite a few, almost half of the ones worldwide are in Europe, but there's a number all all over the world, but they have um, 3,200 repositories they're tracking. So I said I would would talk a little bit about Archive, and uh, Archive primarily focuses on mathematics, physics, astronomy, some other um, computational biology and things like that. But it now has 1.1 million preprints on it, and receives more than 7000 submissions a month so it's it's growing and it is certainly uh, a force within those areas of study one thing that it does is allow versioning and that means you can come in post something and then maybe you get some feedback and that's the primary goal here is to get feedback from others in the field and then they can put a revised version back up and this is helpful because it means that people, if they're searching
0: for the article later, they're seeing only the most, the most up-to-date. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation.
2: So PubMed Central would also be considered a, a repository. So in, while there's 3,300 repositories to choose from, you are in most cases compliant with your you know, governmental funding, for instance. Uh, funding mandates by using something like PubMed Central or there is a European PubMed Central as well so PubMed Central is hosted by the people who run PubMed which is an indexing service Um, it's important to note that many journals are indexed in PubMed so if you're searching PubMed for information related to biomedical research you're gonna find lots and lots of journals that are not necessarily open access and that's because PubMed is indexing just whatever journals it thinks is relevant to the field and are of significant, uh, you know, appropriate quality. PubMed Central is containing, is hosting the free full text of peer-reviewed articles, um, many after an embargo period. So when the U.S. government says, 12 months after you publish, it needs to be free, the majority of, you know, publishers will come around and say, okay, well, 12 months after it's published, you can make it free. PubMed has about four million articles, which is uh, great. A number of journals participate fully, meaning that they just they put things there automatically. Uh, In a number of cases, people are they're they're selectively depositing only the papers that were funded by the U.S. government. They're just trying to remain compliant. That's what these selective deposit journals mean. PubMed Central is an interesting case that they. Are certainly taking things a step further from just a searchable database of PDFs and they are actually everything's available uh, in fact not as a PDF it's available to read in HTML or to use their new pub reader which allows you to um, view a paper more like it's in a journal itself and let you look at the figures that are uh, you know linked to it or click on a particular citation and go to that
0: article as well so it's a little bit more of an immersive experience that they've, they've generated there. Okay, green open access, uh, it,
2: sounds, it sounds good in theory. It lets, lets the publishers work as they've always operated, the same journals, the same authors. Um, but what are the issues with it? What has led to experiments like gold open access where you're, you're taking a much stronger approach? One is limited scope. So uh, a study from a few years ago found that only about 12% of recent literature is actually archived somewhere else. That's a pretty small number. And a third of those end up on an individual homepage, which means they're they're there, they're found, but uh, if there's any issue with the department, uh, let's say that they build a new website, they don't copy over people's homepages, uh, or the individuals using WordPress for their lab, blog and they, they take it down after a couple of years and those papers aren't really preserved in any meaningful way certainly not to the extent that publications are preserved uh, so any good good publisher of course is maintaining backups so even if the publishers website goes down they have a digital object identifier on your article that can still be resolved to something that some sort of archive that's preserving it Um, Because beyond just being a a blog post or um, some information, this is part of the the scholarly record. So there is a point at which you want to make sure you're preserving it carefully. So if someone else is trying to read the citation five years down the road and look back at the paper, that they'll be able to. And if people are citing these additional green OA copies and they're going away, that could create... um, at the very least, uh, a headache for people trying to figure things out. So, as I just mentioned, you, you use a lot of infrastructure. Um, you, you need to have the version on your lab page or the version on
0: repositories or building what are essentially the same database over and over and over and over again. Um, and then they're all in different places.
2: So if you're trying to measure citations to your paper, likely Scopus, Crossref are not picking up the, the citations to a, a green open access version of your article
0: if it doesn't use that same DOI. So that's why there have been better experiments with taking some in-archive or bio-archive find a DOI that can then transfer to the paper if it is published elsewhere, so
2: you can collect all this together. So this would, of course, affect altmetrics as well, if you're looking at just in terms of how people are reading or downloading the work, and updates, if you have to make a correction or, worst-case scenario, a retraction. That might not really be obvious to somebody who's just
0: finding a green Open Access version. So I think um, now's a good time to talk about, as we get into gold Open Access, the fundamental shift in terms of the business model that is happening. This is the traditional model that worked for 300 years, basically. Uh, The author writes something, signs over copyright to the publisher. The publisher then, in the old days, of course, printed and mailed a copy to the libraries. In recent times, they provide online institution uh, in exchange for the subscription cost, the money.
2: And what the publisher is providing the author, of course, is the... Stamp uh, the visibility of having been published, gone through peer review. It's a way of saying that their
0: work is is worth being in the in the scientific record. Or maybe it's in a really really nice journal. Their work is um, valued.
2: Open access models turn this around a little bit. So in exchange uh, for the publication, the um, the publisher is still providing that sort of stamp and seal of approval, but the author is typically paying for the, the process.
0: And in this case, the library is not actually involved in the payment. The author retains copyright under most you know, open access journals, and everyone else gets access then to the uh, published work. Of course, the money could come from some other funder. So it could
2: be the institution covers the payment, it could be uh, the government covers the, the, the costs, or
0: um, something else. So this has been an example of a shift from from providing content to providing a service. So publishers
2: used to provide a physical magazine, journal. Um, They were printing it and mailing it shipping it. They're now providing a service, and that's organizing and running peer review and archiving online information, making sure it's searchable, discoverable, uh, registered appropriately, things like that and there's a little bit of a disconnect now between the beneficiaries and the purchasers this has been true for a while so the libraries are paying but the researchers are benefiting so that takes a lot of work on the library side to make sure they're, they're purchasing the right journals for researchers
0: and things like that subscription journals are not competing for authors based on cost So just keep that in mind uh, I think that the, the new
2: reality of, of open access the gold open access is that the price of publishing now suddenly affects authors very directly. So that's certainly something to, to keep in mind. Um, more authors are, are building in um, funds from, from their grants to cover the cost of publishing their work. Um, and it's just to make, I think, everyone
0: more aware of the, how much the least the publishers say it costs to publish a paper. Okay, so a, f- a few details
2: on Gold Open Access, um, and then we'll sort of continue on some examples. Uh, I mentioned over 9,000 open access journals exist right now. They're in the directory of open access journals, which is always a good resource for you. This is also a couple years old, but you can see the growth in terms of the number of articles available on the the DOAJ website. So this is, of course, people that are choosing to share their articles here, but it's also representative of um, continued growth in terms of open access articles. These are ones that were uh, in the Scopus database, which is a different indexing service run by Elsevier. So covering lots of different fields. Um, you can see the open access is there at the bottom. Um, you're seeing it becoming a rising share of the total number of articles published each year. Okay, so we mentioned that there's, there are fees involved. So the library is no longer paying a subscription to support a journal being run, then that means someone's paying for each article that comes through. The most typical way that we see that done is the article processing charge. And this is almost exclusively for articles that are accepted for publication. So you're not paying anything up front, uh, not knowing whether or not your journal, your article will pass peer review at the journal, but instead when the journal um, accepts your paper then they'll charge the, the, the fee. So how many open access journals are actually charging these? It's an important question, because I think the, the assumption is, well, gold open access has taken over, everyone pays a fee every time they publish open access. Uh, a survey, this is again from a few years ago, no one's done it again to my knowledge, um, they found that over half of the 23,000 researchers they surveyed had recently published open access with no fee. This would mean, again, that it was being supported by the institution, by the publisher, in some other capacity. Of journals listed in the Directory of Open Access journals, only 26 say they charge an APC. I think it's fair to admit that some of them probably don't mention it on, the, on that site. So, uh, but I think even if you assume maybe this is only half of the true number, I think you still find that a large number of journals don't charge anything. And it's finally important to note that many publishers also offer waivers for researchers with limited funding. This can be sometimes no questions asked, it can be sometimes dependent on the country of origin for the researcher, but it's important to keep in mind that if you are looking into an open access uh, journal that you think would be a great fit for your work, but their publication fee might be an issue, it's worth
0: writing to the editorial office and asking what their waiver policy is. Okay, so the fees probably the most interesting part to to most of you. Um,
2: I do want to set the stage by saying that a number of traditional journals do actually charge page fees and certainly they charge if you want to have color in your figures. Um, Being online only, an open access journal in general, they want you to put color in your figures. It's it's a better experience for the the readers and um, there's no extra cost to them because an electron on the screen costs the same. Uh, It's not like they're putting extra ink in the printer. So, in some cases, you could end up paying a few hundred dollars and certainly a couple thousand if you really wanted color figures in a traditional journal. But what do we know about open access journals? Um, first, to start, just to let you know there's a, a big range. And uh, one at the higher end is Nature Communications. So, it's certainly a very exclusive journal that they're, that they're building. And that costs over $5,000 for an, an individual article to be published. Some of the more selective journals, like Plus Biology, BMC Medicine, or BMJ Open, which is the open access um, article, uh, journal published by
0: the same, um, the British Medical Journal used to be the BMJ. So somewhere in the range of two to three thousand dollars for an article. Plus
2: One, which I mentioned, is sort of a paradigm shift uh, mega journal. We'll talk about that in just a second. What that means, um, its fee is about. $1,500 scientific reports which is a similar journal run by the um, nature family is the same price in fact they've they followed plus one in terms of pricing uh, pretty consistently some other journals that run operate on this model might be somewhere in the 1200 300 uh, 1300 kinda of range like AIP advances um, there are examples of things that are less expensive so for, uh, Hindawi operates a portfolio of a couple hundred journals and they range, many of them are free. Sage Open is targeted at Humanities, which I actually have a slide about in a moment as well, and that one costs $395, so much much cheaper. I think uh, you see a lot of this variation. Uh, part of it is you know, the, the power of the brand uh, in some cases, and a lot of it is based, however, on the acceptance rate of the journal. So if you are something, if you are, let's say, getting, uh, hundred submissions and you're only going to accept ten of them, you may still be doing peer review on an additional forty of those and incurring some cost to to uh, your editorial operations. And that means then that the payment for from the articles that are actually accepted needs to be higher to cover the, the same amount of work. So largely that's what you see if you look at these more carefully is that the more selective a journal is, the higher its article processing charge. Not necessarily linearly though. Uh, in some cases I think they really are just basing it off of, uh, of, of the brand and the exclusivity that's, that's perceived. So a recent study went and looked through uh, as many of these as they could find and, and found a range of $8 to $3,900 so it didn't have Nature communications for instance. The median was $800 and the average uh, which is, of course this can be skewed a little bit by the higher end was around $900 and that was true whether you're looking at the journal cost or at the cost of each individual article that was published in that that corpus so expensive but not not too bad again showing that there are a number of journals that are on the the cheaper side if you look specifically at the journals that are in scopus so that means they've been indexed internationally and uh, considered to be you know pretty strong editorially rigorous journals um, the average there was closer to 1400 so still Pretty manageable,
0: right around that, that plus one kind of range. This is where you're likely to wind up if you're looking to publish in a, a gold open access journal. There are also a number of journals that are traditional subscription
2: based, they're selling a subscription, but they would offer an open access option, meaning that uh, if you're coming and publishing there, you could say, I really want this to be open access, or I need it to be, because my institution or my, my funder tells me it needs to be. Um, and that lets you choose then to make something open access immediately. This was first, the first good example was Springer Open Choice in 2004. Um, and now at least half of major publisher journals have some sort of open access option. But it's important to note that a survey asking authors would they pay for this, only 4% of authors would be willing to pay $1,500 or more. So they're, they're all kind of imagining that, that average I told you on the last page, or sort of the plus one cost. And the uptake appears to be only around 2%. And this is looking at a variety of journals and, and publishers again. So it's an option. It could be a last resort if you really wanted to be in a particular journal, but you really had to make it open access. Um, but it certainly seems like we haven't found the best market fit for this um, approach yet. Okay, so what do I mean by calling PLOS One a mega journal? And, and as an example of an open access journal, how is it different from the traditional journals that you're, you're thinking of, or even journals like PLOS Medicine, PLOS Biology, that the open access publishers themselves create? So a mega journal reviews for scientific soundness and not the perceived impact. So they're not concerned about it being a huge splash and making a, you know, changing the way we we view everything in a certain field. Instead, was the research done correctly, with proper controls, with proper ethical guidelines, things like that. Mega journals tend to have a broad subject scope because they're not as concerned with it fitting a certain niche. Instead, they just want, kind of reminds me of the old New York Times slogan, all the news that's fit to print. So if, if it's worthy of being part of the public scientific record, it belongs in the journal. Now, Typically they have to narrow the scope somewhat to be science or even particularly biology or something like that um, just from the standpoint of finding reviewers and managing the process. And in that case they publish any and all articles that meet these criteria so they aren't limited to uh, you know 50 articles an issue, the most interesting ones get in, the rest get bumped down the line, um, it's, it's made to expand and contract based on the availability of publishable articles. So here's just a number of examples, PLOS One was the first, uh, Scientific Reports, Um, I mentioned SAGE Open, or the Open uh, Library of the Humanities, the final one there, Um, G3, there's there's tons. Um, I saw Amanda send a link out to our our AJE's Resource Center. If you do go there to the Open Access uh, resources we have, one of them is about mega journals and you'll see a more, more complete list. And these types of journals are becoming more popular. So people are saying, well, I need to publish. I like the idea of it being available to anyone. And you know, is there a point at which if it's not going to be a nature paper, if it's not going to be top of my field, maybe the next step is just to, to publish it, <clears throat> knowing that it was rigorously peer reviewed, but not just like, does it fit this journal? Instead, is it well done? Was it done appropriately? So this is a study done by Pete Binfield who worked at PLOS One, left to found PeerJ, another open access mega journal. Um, just looking at the output in all, all mega journals and then PLOS One is plotted there as well. This goes through the last you know, few years ago. We are seeing PLOS One for instance level off a little bit as,
0: as people start to, to go to a lot of these other, but in terms of the total number of publications in mega journals, it's, it's still growing.
2: I did want to have a slide in here and talk a little bit about humanities publishing. And this is an area that I would say is completely unresolved at this point, but there are some experiments involving open access in the humanities which which might surprise a number of people. Um, And the main reason I think that this has been a trickier thing is that uh, of the publications in the humanities, and you can see from this slide, the bottom blue bar shows journal articles. The rest are books, book chapters, or other types of publications. So, individual journal articles, they tend to be much longer, more complicated. There's a lot more within the editorial process of an editor at a journal actually helping helping shape the the story for the readers and and making sure that it fits within the issue and things like that. Um, They don't really make it directly analogous to to humanities. Uh, There's also really little research funding. It takes a long time before papers are cited. And so, this has all led to sort of a perfect storm where the the model of paying up front for something um, doesn't seem to be catching on quite the same way. But we are seeing some things like Sage Open or the Open Library of the Humanities that are experimenting with it. Okay, so I'm going to breeze through a couple of, of myths. Um, these are things that even after looking sort of at the, at the information that's, that's available, not everyone has that sort of full picture of open access. Uh, and these are some things that, when we you know, did, did these webinars and seminars, we would get these kind of questions. Or I certainly had the same um, experience when, when I was in the lab, and we, we thought I thought PLOS One was like Wikipedia, and it wasn't really peer-reviewed, and it was designed for you to publish anything, and then just people would add to it, something like that. Um, so one of the myths, the open access journals are not peer-reviewed. And this was certainly put forth um, in a recent uh, sting uh, that's what he called it, John Bohannon from uh, Science, sent a, a fake paper with, with some pretty bad, you know, lacking ethical guidelines and things like that um, around the world to lots of different, different journals and publishers. Um, and he saw about half of these publishers accepted his paper, uh, even though it had some pretty, pretty clear flaws to it. So this is, this is true, but we are talking again here um, these are the kind of publishers that you are taking advantage of the model, and I have a, a slide about that in a minute. But it's important to know that they don't rec- they don't represent something like BMC or PLOS or um, Hindawi, places that are actually providing peer review. Um, so really, it depends on the journal, and there are some resources we have listed here or um, available um, also on a couple of our articles on the resource center. That can help you identify whether a particular journal is something you want to, to submit to or not. So it has nothing to do with open access itself. It's just that with a model in which the author is paying a charge, that
0: left the door open for questionable businesses to come in, pretend that they're selling you peer review when they're really not. So another myth is that open access journals are of poor quality.
2: And I think this was is pretty clearly debunked if you just look back at, at PLOS Biology as one of the founding examples. Um, I don't necessarily think the impact factor is the best representation of, of quality for a journal, but it's a very common one, one that a lot of people's you know, uh, grants and salaries are tied to. Um, and if you look at the impact factors for a lot of these journals, they're, they're pretty good. And even something broad like PLOS One or Scientific Reports has an impact factor that, honestly, is as good or better uh, as a lot of journals that, that I published in in my field and Biomed Central has over 175 journals with with impact factors so they're they're treated just like any other traditional journal they, they often look pretty good in their field um, so again it comes down to journal by journal but as a movement open access is not different it's a different model a different approach but
0: it can be done with just as high quality uh, material um, as traditional journals. Sorry, click back in there. There are some other new ones. Uh, eLife is a good example, very, very selective journal. ACS Central
2: Science or eBiomedicine, run by Elsevier. These are designed to, to compete with the New England Journal of Medicine, Nature, things like that. Um, so they're being very selective.
0: They're on an open access model, but um, there's no reason to believe that they're. That they're any different okay another uh, quick note and then we'll we'll,
2: we'll wrap up with a, a few minutes on how open access uh, affects you and get to the questions open access articles do not reserve rights for authors this is another misconception um, It's important to note some free-to-read free-to-reuse are different right the copyright that that the journal has on a lot of your material they might still grant license for people to read it for free the Creative Commons licenses that are more common uh, among open access journals, actually allow some, allow some amount of reuse or distribution as well. So um, I won't get into the different Creative Commons licenses too much, but uh, Amanda just put this in the chat, I've uh, got it here on the slide. Um, we did just partner with Bite Size Bio to um, provide some content that helps you understand the different licenses um, Creative Commons attribution, the CC BY license is the broadest, but there are some differences in terms of the other licenses available or used by journals. The important thing to note though, they allow some amount of, of reuse and they all allow you some author's rights, so um, whereas traditionally you didn't even have the right, you signed over the copyright to the journal or to the publisher, you now maintain the rights, um, they're just slightly different. So. Um, encourage you to go take a look at that if you're wondering about the difference. Um, another myth is that open access is a passing fad. Um, I won't spend too much time here except just to show you this chart. Uh, I think it's pretty clear from our discussion that more and more journals, more and more articles are, are using open access. So um, this is even less of a myth that you hear anymore. People tend to consider open access to be a, a part of scholarly publishing through and through. So in 2011, 16% of articles were OA. That number is certainly higher, probably in the 20s at this point now. OK, all fine and good. We've got lots of examples, a um, little bit of the history. What does that mean for researchers? Should they use open access? Is it good for them? How do you make sure you don't fall prey to one of these um,
0: journals that was caught in that sting? And what do you, how do you make sense of some of these mandates? So the pros and cons. Um, there are certainly benefits. There are actually some downsides. Benefits are increased exposure,
2: um, not only to the public, which of course can read your article. Someone, let's say, who have, has a family member with a certain disease can read the article, doesn't have to go to um, a local institution to read it in the library. But other researchers, they don't always have access to the same journals either, um, especially around the world. It encourages the reuse of data and meta analysis, so it's actually going. Uh, to make things simpler, if we want to do a meta-analysis of, of medical data or other kind of um, clinical trials and things like that. Uh, if it's free and encouraged to reuse, then you don't have to go journal by journal requesting, requesting, can I use this, can I use this, can I use this. Um, it really opens the door for a lot of automated data crunching. Better competition. So you have journals now that are trying to get you to to, to submit a paper to them. So um, used to be they just had to convince the library that everyone loved their journals so they could keep bundling it as part of their, their giant contract. Certainly easier to access. Um, you're not seeing all the hoops you have to jump through. You don't have to fire up your, your VPN, go to a certain website, use your login. Um, you just go to the website and it's there. Uh, it could reduce the amount that uh, a library has to spend. Um, in a number of cases, this, this funding is actually been turned around and given to authors to pay the open access uh, article processing charge. So it may not really reduce cost, but it may just shift it. Citation increase, I put a question mark here because it's not, we're really up in the air on that. It may be that, that just you get a little bit of faster exposure among researchers, but not necessarily a citation boost, since a uh, majority of people probably will find access to the paper in some way if they really are in your field or close to it. Okay, the downsides. Now you've got these journals out there that may or may not really be providing the right kind of level of peer review. Finding the right one, avoiding those traps. That's a downside. It can be difficult getting credit for publications in these newer journals. So now they're brand new. um, We don't know much about them. May not have an impact factor yet. Um, It may be hard for you to go to your committee, your tenure committee, and say, hey, I did a good job here. It's also hurting some of the small small publishers and learned societies who publish journals. So if if more and more articles are going into mega journals or are going into these big bundles, um, it's, it's harder for them
0: to make make a difference. Or really even stay afloat sometimes. And now you have a cost to you. Okay. I will go through this uh, list quickly
2: because I want to get to the governmental mandates and and finish up, keep be mindful of your, your time, make sure we have time for questions. Um just gonna Talk about predatory journals. These are disreputable publishers. We're starting to see these come out because they know they can make money off of authors. Um, paper could be completely plagiarized, fake, the authors might not be real. Um, a number of them will pretend they have an impact factor. They'll put people on editorial boards that aren't really there, things like that. So here's a list of just a couple things you can look for. Um, obviously, if you have evidence they're not doing peer review, uh, if their editorial board is only coming soon that 's a bad sign they don 't really have researchers in the field invested. Um, I think the biggest one is to look for errors in the published papers themselves. <clears throat> so you know I, I was looking at a, an article uh, I studied uh, cholera in when I was uh, working in research, and I would see this journal that had had it the organism spelled wrong throughout the paper and just thinking that The authors didn't realize it, but also the peer reviewers didn't catch it. The editor didn't catch it. Um, That's a a bad sign. It wasn't just a typo. It was that they they fundamentally didn't know the organism that was causing cholera. So how do you figure that out? Just a few resources uh, to keep in mind. or We do have an article on the Resource Center addressing this question um, if if you need it. So um, Directive Open Access Journals, they're doing a lot more now to, to vet the journals that are in it. The organization, uh, the Open Access Scholarly Publishing Association, that's a good sign. Um, Jeffrey Beal operates a list uh, that's the opposite. He puts journals up there that he thinks are questionable or predatory, but you can get a little more information by searching his site to see if other people have had a bad experience. Or you can use Journal Guide, which is a, a tool that's affiliated with us um, that we run um, that lets you look and see if a journal has been verified. That means it's in something like PubMed or Scopus where they've done at least a, some amount of editorial review, um, and that's that can be a good sign as well. Your colleagues, of course, are a great resource. Okay, so I'm finished with a couple of notes about mandates and what that means. So funding agencies, probably the most important mandates to pay attention to. If you're in the U.S. and getting uh, grants from the National Institutes of Health, um, they in 2009 said any funded research has to be publicly available within 12 months led to the use of PubMed Central. The Wellcome Trust in the UK says within six months and they're even reevaluating that to see about making it shorter. The Higher Education Funding Council for England, which um, eventually actually provides the funding to individual institutions, um, they say a final peer-reviewed manuscript must have been deposited in an institutional or subject repository on acceptance. So this is the new criteria saying, okay. If we want more funding, you have to work even harder to make sure that something is available right away. And this ties it back to then the researcher behavior. So the institution has, has, a, has a goal of making sure its faculty are compliant as well because they want funding from this council. So I think the, you know, England and the UK has been a, a leader in this area. But in Brazil in 2007, they passed a national, a national bill requiring all institutions of higher ed to have an online repository available that their, their uh, we faculty could use. So the funders are probably the places where you're, having, you, you're really seeing the, the hardest line, but you may also see institutional level mandates pop up. So Harvard, Duke University, where I got my degree, University of Cambridge, they all offer um, some sort of, uh, what I would consider more to be a policy. So they tend to be non-binding or have waiver options. So someone can say, well, this is all fine and good, but I published in this journal because it's the best one and I don't want to make my, my work freely available. Um, but you do see these. Um, and you can look and see that the number of these kind of policies adopted by research organizations, that top bar, is growing really, 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 really heavily over the last few years, so quarter by quarter there. Horizon 2020
0: is uh, interesting
2: for anyone who's in the European Union. They are planning to spend about 80 billion euro uh, toward research and innovation, and any research from this funding must be open access. That's the way it's written now. Um, There's certainly still some wrinkles to work out, but this could be a pretty huge game changer um, in terms of of driving open access publishing. So how do these mandates affect a researcher? For one, Compliance, you have to pay them a little more attention to make sure that the, the journal that you're, you're publishing in will allow you to post something and, and be compliant with, say, Horizon funding, NIH funding, um, or the national government if you're in Brazil. I think we're likely to see a lot more um, hybrid open access options, so people um, you know, don't lose out on Horizon 2020 funded research or uh, things like that. Other journals may flip to be full open access. They might say, that's okay, you know what? This, and It's easier for us to be part of this wave than it is to, to try to worry about the subscription costs. Um, this has been done to, to varying effect already uh, with, with journals. BMC operates some journals that came over to be open access. Um, nucleic Acids Research, which actually is a really good one in the field of DNA. Um, Oxford University Press, they, they flipped that one to full open access uh, probably about 10 years ago now. Um, and have seen it maintain its its status in the field. Finally, I imagine you'll see some other innovations. So um, new metrics to determine the success of an individual article, uh, additional protocols or services to help you avoid the bad publishers, right? If you're being told you have to publish open access, then there really is a a strong need for something that's gonna help you sort out the right places to go. or even to uh, certify manuscripts so that, that uh, if they're all part of this big heap in a mega journal, you know, ha- have they really been, um, is the data available? The point of making it open access is about availability and making sure people are um, adhering to the same powerful traditions and publication ethics standards, but doing it in a way that allows people to actually build on the work. So I think you'll see a little
0: bit more around, around that space as well. So open access is here to stay. Um, This is a young young man by the name
2: of uh, Jack who was uh, 15 or 16 years old. um, Eventually found some work that was, some of it was open access, some of it wasn't, and he had to kind of sneak around the paywalls. Was able to define, go go into the lab, do a project, to build a better diagnostic system for for prostate cancer. Um, And so people are realizing that the more open we can make research, the better it is for everyone. The the journals
0: get more exposure, the authors get more exposure as well. Um, So it's here to stay. The question is exactly how it's going to look. Okay, well, um,
2: just a couple of final notes. You can um, write to us at AJE if you have any questions about writing or publishing research, open access or not. Um, I want to give a shout-out to a couple of other other sites that have great resources on publishing. Um, It is Open Access Week this week, so you can check openaccessweek.org to see if there's any events happening in your area. Um, Bite Size Bio has some great resources on writing and publishing as well. And we do have our Author Resource Center, which is completely free, um, aj.com arc, and uh, it's available actually in six different languages. Um, it's got resources that span lots of things, videos, resources, uh, articles as well. So that is it. I really appreciate your attention. I would love to answer any questions that you have. Uh, there's my email address as well if you have Um, Questions that uh, pop into your head later. Uh, Thanks again.
1: Thanks, Ben. That was an excellent presentation. Um, We have a few questions from the audience, and if anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So, our first question is: So, I think this is more kind of your opinion. So, which one is better, um, gold open access or green?
2: Okay. Yeah. So, I will. I'll take that as certainly my 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 opinion mainly. And I think that if there's real interest in making research freely available, it's it's better and simpler just to use the gold open access system and say, let's bake that in to the process of publishing so that you're not having to to take something that's published elsewhere and have a second form of it existing on a lab web page or a repository. Um, that's leading to a lot, of, a lot of silos where people are reproducing a lot of effort and in terms of, well, then they have to upload it a second place and put in all the details and, and tying those two together is complicated. So um, while, while green would be the preferred, I think, preferred choice of publishers who want to just continue on the way they've continued uh, and, just, and just work around it this way, um, I think gold makes more sense just from the standpoint of, of simplifying. I'd rather have it be be simpler for for authors and for readers So it's an excellent so that question. sounds like it
1: would be more streamlined as well.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it.
1: And then we have another question from um, I'm sorry i'm going to if I mess up your name, it's Yashvant, and they're asking if there's any if you know of any discounts for publishing for middle to lower income countries
2: yeah, yeah, so so definitely. Um, I think Plos is a good example of uh, of, of a publisher that does this. Um, if you look on their website, I I tell you what I can I'll see if I can pull it up and maybe we can sneak it into the the chat window. But um, they definitely offered tiered pricing for um, countries, and it's based on the um, the UN's designation of the you know how how, many, how much resources a given country has. So they have three different tiers for countries around the world, the pricing is is tiered as well. So I believe it's you know full price if you're in tier one, it's five hundred dollars if you're in the middle tier, and they will actually waive the publication cost if you're coming from a country that uh, the United Nations considers to be um, developing and really, really poor on resources. So uh, it's an excellent question. They're they're the best example I know of. Um, but there are some others. I think Biomed Central also We'll, we'll take that into account. So, okay.
0: um,
2: I would certainly just in general encourage people to, uh, to write. You can do it early in the process. You can do it before you sent your paper and, and explain the situation. You know, say, look, this is where I'm from. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is what I'm up against. Um, you know, are there any sort of waivers available? Um, the waiver is always treated and handled separately from the editor, or it should be separate from okay. the editor who's choosing to, you know, whether your paper gets accepted. Um, so it would be, know, be somebody within the, at the publisher level that would, would make that decision. Um, so the editor's not worrying about whether or not you need a waiver. They're worried about finding the right reviewers and making sure that they decide whether your paper is
0: appropriate to publish. Um, yeah, so just to throw that out there.
1: Okay, and then we have a question from um, Pratap asking about the funding agency mandates. Do you know of any that are in India or other places in Asia?
2: Yes, that's an excellent question. So um, I do not know of any in India, in particular. Okay. Um, I know that, that China is is working to support open access publishing at the governmental level. So by you know providing governmental funds to you. Know, produce open access journals that are of high quality, that you know, people from all over the world would want to publish in, but as far as I know that hasn't risen to the level of a mandate yet. Um, instead, what, what you find with the Chinese government is if as a researcher you want to make um, the, the full bonus, so you, you have a base salary, you get bonuses based on how you publish. Mm-hmm. That all currently is tied to the impact factor of the journal, or the prestige of the journal that you publish in. So it's really regardless of open access or, or traditional publishing. Um, so there may be, there may be some, um, some changes ahead where they, they want to combine those two and say, well, we want to encourage you to publish in open access journals because you, know, you get the greater visibility. Um, but currently it's not a, a requirement.
1: Okay. And then, I'm um, sorry, I have no idea how to pronounce your name, but washia she, was she, yeah, wants to know a little bit more about humanities journals or funding. Do you have any resources that I can point in their direction or in the general direction for our audience that might be interested in humanities?
2: Sure. Um, so I, I think that the, um, I wish I had put the website up, the, um, the Open Library of the Humanities, uh, okay. they OLH, is, is they're, they're really attempting, I think, to do this the most, to figure out a solution for the humanities in the most rigorous way. So the OLH is going and and actually working with libraries and and trying to sort of subsidize a basic framework for open access publishing within the humanities. There, you got it, great, thank you. Um, So That would be, I think, a good example. If you look at their blog, if you look at how they're how they're approaching it um, of what I think is really going to work well. The other Option is there are some open access journals run by individual publishers. The Sage Open is pretty broad, all of humanities. Um, Brill has a few, or like law, uh, social science. That they're a little more specified. But as far as I can tell, the uptake hasn't been very strong, and that's largely because for them to operate, they need to charge, even if it's only four hundred dollars. That that's still not very appealing to a humanities researcher who's saying, look, I don't get any funding, right? Like you, you do this as part of your your faculty position um, and, and you're you're able to contribute uh, in ways that just don't involve the same sort of grant structure as someone who's studying a, a pathogenic disease. Um, so I, I think that there's always going to be that sort of hurdle to cross, like as long as there are other options that, that don't cost you four months, you know, why would you choose the journal that does? Right. Um, so I wish I had a better answer than that, but <laughs> I, I think the, the OLH is a good example of trying to figure out a way, working with humanities, researchers, and libraries to, to figure it out.
1: And then I've got an interesting question from um, Ricardo. So they ask, um, what do you think the main challenge for small journals in the short term is? So they say that in Brazil they have hundreds of small journals, so where should editors concentrate their time and effort?
0: It's a great
2: question. So, what what can a what can a small journal do to compete in this world, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, it typically, uh, unfortunately, the I, I mean, what you really want to do is is elevate your, your status to where your journal would be indexed internationally. So, it would be part of you know PubMed. Let's say if you're in the biomedical fields, it would be part of Scopus, um, regardless of your field. Um, and that usually takes uh, it takes time. It takes effort on on the part of the editor to go find these organizations and submit an application so depending on the journal and how small it is that they may not have done that yet Um, that's something i would recommend uh, looking into the other thing is just to to go try to find a few really good authors in your field Mm -hmm. get them on your editorial board or get them to submit some papers Uh, it really is a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of you get some good authors in the door, they want to share their article. More people have become aware of your journal. They go, oh, oh, I know this. You know, I know this doctor. Um, she's she's great. And I did, I'm reading her article, and it's published in this new this journal that maybe I hadn't heard of, wasn't familiar with. Um, you start to look into it more. Next thing, next thing you know, people are submitting where they they saw that article published. So I would say. One would be that, that application process to some of these international indexes. There are others that are you know, psych info, if you're in psychology, they're sort of specific by field. Um, take the time to apply to those and, and figure out how you can get indexed elsewhere. And two would be every conference you're at, every, every time you, you see someone who's great in your field, talk to them about your, your, your journal, really, and see if, see if they would be willing to, to be part of it somehow.
1: Okay, and then I think we've got one last question from Sandy. So what she asks is, um, since open access is available and the author retains their copyright using Creative Commons in a lot of cases, is it better to go right to the author for the article or to the journal?
0: Um, So um, typically, I would say it's still probably easier to go to the journal.
2: Uh, and that's because the while the author has rights to the material, they the journal still does have a right to distribute it. And the journal is going to be the place that makes sure it's archived properly, makes sure it's given a, a you know, like a digital object identifier. Um, and in all likelihood, it's probably the oh wait is this a question about just finding it or about like asking for permission to do something with it? Maybe that's a, an important distinction. Um, if if it's about just finding it, I would say that the journals are always going to be easier. They're, they're built okay. to be their site's built to be searched well. It's built to to house the content appropriately and archive it and make sure it's you know searchable by Google, things like that. Um, if you do have a question then about reuse, let's say maybe if they've used the broadest you know the .CC attribution license, you actually don't have to go to them. That's the beautiful thing. You can take it. You can take a, a piece from it and build off of it. You can take some data out of it or a beautiful schematic from it. You can take information. Um, you can use it in a class, whatever it is you need to do. It, provided that you mention who the original authors are. So you would say, you know, this is from so and so at all, and this is where it was published. Then you don't actually have to go to them with questions about it. Um, if they have a more restrictive license and you're you're concerned that what you're gonna how you're gonna reuse
0: it might, you know. Uh, they they might not approve, then you would want to go directly to the the authors in that case.
1: Okay, and that makes sense. Well, that brings us to the end of the webinar. So thank you again, Ben, for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion. And also thanks to our sponsor, American Journal Experts. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you enjoyed the webinar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the webinars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There, you can also see the other webinars we have lined up for you this year. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at American Journal Experts in Bite Size Bio.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com webinars finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey but what if you don't have one look no further than mentors at your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills techniques and career progression With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.